in, as you can see from the title, it's a little bit of an unpopular idea. We don't really like to talk about false doctrine. We don't really like telling anyone that uh, your doctrine is wrong. You know, no one really likes doing that anymore. But we're going to pick up the story because in Acts chapter 15, the church deals with false doctrine. And it's actually quite a pivotal moment in the development of the early church and the movement of the gospel. And uh, so the church deals with, ironically, the particular doctrine that they deal with continues to be an issue for quite some time in the early church. So if you read Paul's letters, you'll see he's often talking about the role of the law and, and its role amongst Christians. But we're going to pick up the story here. And, uh, and I want to say, I think this is a really significant issue today, as much as it was a really significant issue back then. And so we're going to have a look, we're going to see how they dealt with it, and then we're going to talk a little bit about how false doctrine begins to come into the church today. Right? And I know that's not always the funnest topic, we're not going to witch hunt anyone, I promise, we're really not going to do that, but we want to just be aware of how these things begin to happen and why it's important that we believe the right stuff. Okay? So let's read together, let's jump in, we're going to read almost the whole of Acts chapter 15, so quite a lot of scripture, and we're just going to see the story that happens there, we're going to make a couple of observations about how the church responds, and then we're going to apply that for ourselves today. All right, Acts chapter 15 from verses 1 to 35, it says, A certain people came down from Judea to Antioch, and they were teaching the believers that unless you were circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. I love that phrase, right? Sharp disputes and debate. We had a, we had a vigorous disagreement. <laughs> there was some serious arguing that was going on, right? So Paul and Barnabas were appointed by the church, along with some other believers, to go to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and they, as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted, and this news made all the believers glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, to whom they reported everything that God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met to consider this question. And after much discussion, Peter got up and he addressed them. And he said, brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear, might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try and test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling them about the signs and the wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. And when they finished, James stood up and spoke, and he said, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. Remember, Simon is Peter. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who do who does these things, things known from long ago. 
It is my judgment, therefore, James continues, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. When Then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, who was called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. And with them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization, and they disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and to send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements, that you are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. It's a long letter. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. And after spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of God. Okay, that's our story for this morning. I want us to notice what I consider to be four key observations in this text. There are many other things we could notice. There's a lot of text there. Right, but we're going to look at just four, and then we're going to begin to apply that to our situation today. Do you notice, this is the first thing, do you notice that when the issue arises, the approach the church decides to follow is to bring the theological challenge to the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem? Now, I think this is quite interesting because initially, remember, Paul and Barnabas get into sharp disputes with the people that, and I don't know how well that would have gone for the guys who are proponents of people obeying the Jewish law. I don't know if you've ever read some of Paul's letters. Peter, the rock on which Jesus founded the church, writes to us and said, look guys, sometimes Paul's letters are difficult to understand. He's quite an intellectual guy. He's quite well educated. I'm reasonably sure that the debate that Paul and Barnabas were having with these guys did not go well for them. That they got properly schooled by Paul and Barnabas as they stood up and explained to them why it was unnecessary for the Gentiles to obey the Jewish law. But instead of just leaving it there, Paul and Barnabas are appointed by the church in Antioch to take that question and to submit it to the elders and the apostles in Jerusalem, which ironically is where the proponents of this teaching came from in the first place. And and then they get to Jerusalem and the issue is raised again. Right, immediately as they get there, verse 5, someone else raises the issue. So you can see it's quite a pervasive and contemporary issue the church is wrestling with. And immediately the response is that the elders and the apostles met together to consider the question. I think there are two things that are quite meaningful in this. I think there's a recognition of the blessing of the leadership that the apostles and the elders provided to the church. Paul and Barnabas, they could have settled the issue in Antioch, but do you know that they walked 480 kilometers down to Jerusalem? so that the apostles and elders could settle the question? 
Because if they settle the question, it carries authority. If they settle the question, it's now an official decision that's binding on the church. It's because God gave the apostles and the elders to spiritually safeguard the church so that the church would be blessed by that leadership. Second thing that I think is interesting to note in doing this is that whilst it does seem to be the apostles and the elders who engage in the decision, if you look at verse 12, it seems to very clearly indicate that the whole assembly of the church, a large assembly of the church, was gathered to listen to the discussion. I find that quite interesting, that they seem to both include the broader church in the process, but at the same time, they exclude them from participating. So all the speakers, you'll notice, are the apostles, but the, and, but the rest of the church seems to be there to watch and to understand, then they elect the people that go along to, to share it, right? Well, it's just an interesting thing to notice. So the first thing, the blessing of leadership. The second key observation I want us to notice is that the apostles and the elders, they considered this particular theological issue to be central to the nature of the gospel. That's why it got the attention that it did. If you look in verse 11, Peter explicitly sets up the fact that what these guys are asking, that obedience to the Jewish law is a salvific issue. It relates to the fact that through Jesus we are now saved by grace and not by obeying the law. And so this issue, as opposed to some others, because there were many other issues in the early church, receives significant and maybe more extreme treatment than some of the other issues because it's a gospel issue, because it's a central issue. It affects the very truth of the gospel itself. If the law is required in order to be saved, then the gospel is not really good news at all. We all have to carry on doing the 613 commandments of the law. Some theological issues are just, they're they're more significant than others because they relate to things that are more central to the gospel. And our world today is is unfortunately really good at creating gray areas. And this is, I think, one of the biggest challenges in wrestling with false doctrine today is that we need to be able to distinguish that which is black and white and that which God gives a bit of grayness in, right, where there's a bit of grace to wrestle with things in. Where God has spoken unambiguously and clearly, we need to stand on that truth. And we need to not compromise. We need to say, this is what God has said. Thirdly, I want you to notice in this text how the elders and the apostles reach the outcome that they reach. Because there's three main contributors to to this decision. And firstly, it's Peter, then it's Barnabas and Paul, and then it's James. And Peter gets up and he shares from a shared experience. He tells them about what has happened in Acts chapter 10. Do you remember the story of Cornelius, right? The Roman centurion that sent men to Joppa and fetch Peter and he came back and then the Holy Spirit was poured out on a Gentile family. And then Peter comes back and he tells the whole church about it. If you read the story in Acts chapter 10. When he speaks now, he's saying, you all know how God through me allowed the gospel to go to the Gentiles. He's referring to this moment, right? Where the spirit was poured out on Cornelius and his family. And then he speaks about the history of the Jewish people. Again, something that they were all able to relate to. He says, you all know that from, like, for all of our ancestry, we've been unable to carry the fullness of the Jewish law. So he actually talks, he doesn't really speak about theology until he, at the end where he speaks about the nature of the gospel. Right? But he relates it all the way back to that shared experience that they carry. Then Barnabas and, Saul and Paul get up, and they tell the council how God has been at work through them in their various missionary journeys in the time that they've been in Antioch, and how Gentiles have come to know the Lord through them, and how God has proved that it's good and of Him by performing signs and wonders amongst them. 
Right? And that's the point of their story. God has ordained and approved of the fact that Gentiles have received the gospel because he has displayed his approval in miraculous signs and wonders. And then James gets up to speak. And, and he does what I believe is necessary for the true affirmation of any right doctrine. Is he establishes a congruence between the actions of God in history and the writing of God in the scripture. And he says these two things see eye to eye with one another. They are totally together in this thing. Right, he tells everyone that what they've been hearing, how God has given salvation to the Gentiles, is actually a fulfillment of what God has already said through the prophets. And we're going to pick that idea up a little bit later, but I think that's quite a significant idea for us in recognizing what is true and what is right. Finally, I want us to notice, because false doctrine can be a very thorny issue, it can be a very divisive issue, I want you to notice the pastoral concern that's showed by the apostles and elders in the way in which they outwork their decision. Theologically, they've come to a place where they've said, this idea that Gentiles need to obey the Jewish law is incorrect. It is not true. It's bad doctrine. But the way in which we're going to apply that is we're going to say, you know what? If you would just do these four things, Gentiles, there's 613 things they're asking you to do. If you just do these four, it will go an awful long way to making your Jewish brothers and sisters not feel awkward, not, not being put out because you're together in the church. And if you're if you're flagrantly operating in a way with your freedom that's so offensive to your brother, you're causing disunity in the church. And so their advice to them is, you know what, if you would just curtail your freedom a little bit, it's not, a, it's not necessary for your salvation, but if you would just do that, it'll do so much for your brothers and sisters in the Lord, for whom this is a very deep-seated issue and a very difficult issue. I think that's really significant in the way in which they've done that. I want us to take a little bit of a moment to now... To, to shift out of Acts 15 and to begin to talk a little bit about how we wrestle with false doctrine today. And I want to start, and we need to start by saying what we believe is really important. As much as I wish it was sometimes otherwise, what we believe about God and about others and about ourselves is extremely important. Notice, notice when Peter shares the story, he says, brothers, why do you try and test God? Well, why are you, are you provoking God to anger? To believe and to advocate for false doctrine is actually ultimately what he's saying. It's idolatry. You're placing your own beliefs and your own ideas of what is right above what God has said is right. And that makes God angry. Right? Because it's you are not honoring him. You're honoring yourself. Which is why when Paul speaks to the Romans, he says that those who don't obey the truth, they suppress the truth by their wickedness. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal humans. Right? They placed themselves in the place of God. What we believe is important because God calls us to believe in Him, not our version of Him. Which, and, and that is rampant. It's rampant today. Where we, we just want to tweak God to be a little bit more like us because it's just a little bit more comfortable that way. Secondly, what we believe is important because God's truth leads us to life. And false doctrine leads to bondage and death. Jesus said, the tr you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John 8.32. He says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. But false doctrine doesn't do that. Notice what Peter says. Why are you trying to test God? By putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have ever been able to bear. This idea that you are trying to push onto the whole church is a heavy burden 
that no one is able to carry, and you will burn out, and you will become tired and disenfranchised. Ultimately, false doctrine comes from the evil one, whose desire is to steal, kill, and destroy. And we're going to see that a little bit more later as we explore some other scriptures. But what we believe is critically important because what we believe is really about who we believe, whose truth we're going to believe. And who we believe determines whether we're going to live in the life or in bondage. That's why false doctrine is important. So we're going to talk a little bit about it. And um, as a bit of an intro to that, I'm going to show you a clip of the lead pastor of Hillsong, New York, in an interview that he gave. His name is Carl Lenz. And I'm not trying to call bash at this point in time. There are many things that Carl has said that I don't really appreciate or think are helpful. Right? But I want you to just notice, um, I want you to look at this clip and, and notice how I think it's illustrative of the way in which the church is beginning to engage with the world today. Right? And I want to see, I want to, we chat a little bit about it after and see what you notice in the clip and we can talk about it. But Jackie, would you put that on for us? seen any of Carl Lenz's moments. This might not be the interview you thought we were going to watch. Um, anything you notice in that video that you thought was concerning, or do you think it was okay? Yeah. He's totally avoiding the question, yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't want to make a public statement about the question. Yeah. Right, it's just a societal challenge. The Bible doesn't really have a stance on it. 
No, apparently not. I mean, I think it's a couple of things just to say. I, like, it's never ideal to start with the message as a, as a doctrinal basis for your church. The message is a wonderful paraphrase. It's very helpful in understanding what the Scripture might be saying, but it's not Scripture itself. Um, you might be interested to notice that, uh, that be attentive to individual needs is apparently the translation for um, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. Uh, like, it's not even there. I don't know where Eugene managed to find that, but he did, right? I think having a dialogue with people who wrestle with sin is a great idea. I think that's an important idea. But when you are silent as a church about what God has said to the church, that is a problem. It tells the church that God doesn't have a stance on this thing anymore. The pulpit is the place to preach the Word of God, to say what God has said, even if that's going to be offensive to some people. If I think it's okay to constantly cheat on my wife, and no one ever tells me, Brad, that is not okay, right? there's a problem in the church. Right? We need to know that. I, I'm not expecting Carl to go out into the media and tell the media how much he hates gay people. I don't think he should. I don't think that's the right thing to say. Right? But he should be able to say what the Bible says in the church. By saying we have a stance on love, we have a conversation about everything else, I think he sets up a dichotomy in God that's just not there. Right? That the only non-negotiable thing in God these days is love. Everything else is kind of negotiable. Everything else in God is really, it's a bit flexible. We have conversations about it. You're beginning to see one of the major problems in our world today. See, our world doesn't like absolutes anymore. Right? Postmodernism has so fundamentally affected the bedrock of the idea of truth that the church is no longer able to stand and say, this is absolute truth. This is what we believe God has said. And we're going to stand on it. We used to be able to say that if God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Now we have conversations. Right? It's becoming very unpopular in the church. Our absolutes are shifting, and love is the only absolute that is left that our culture will accept. Right? You, you with me on that? Right? The world likes the idea of love. And by love, they don't actually mean a biblical idea of love. Right? What they really mean is acceptance that you can't judge me, that you don't have the right to tell me anything about my life, right? More and more you'll begin to hear this message. A loving God would never, and then insert your sin issue there. I read a book when I was in seminary in my first year. It was a book by a professor of theology at Messiah College in the USA, an assistant professor. Her name was Sharon Baker, and she wrote a book called Raising Hell. And in this book, she essentially deconstructs the biblical picture of what hell is. And, and I think it was amazing because in the prologue to the book, she starts and she says, I'm writing this book because my grandmother is dying. And my grandmother is a dear, sweet old lady. And I can't comprehend a picture of God that would send my lovely grandmother to hell. And so I've re-examined the scriptures and I have a new idea of what hell is. And all she did was take one idea that God is love and ignore everything else that the Scripture had to say and reinterpret everything else. And I want to say to us, whenever you are, you are whatever teaching you're listening to or reading, and the, the, the teaching begins to override one aspect of God in light of another, 
it's likely that that teacher is motivated by themselves and not God. Sometimes there are things in God that are difficult to understand. There are tensions that God, that God is both perfectly loving and perfectly just. I don't always know how that's going to work itself out. But I need to affirm in my understanding of who God is that that's who He is. That He will always do what is right. He will always hold sin to account. But He is a loving God and a merciful God and a gracious God. And mercy triumphs over judgments. And I don't know how God's going to work that out in the end, but I know that both of those things are true. We need to make sure that we hold some of those tensions together. Secondly, when when watching out for false doctrine, you know, watch out for teachers that will elevate experience above the truth of God's word. Right? That's a bit of a tendency that exists in our culture today. And let me say this: true and genuine theology must outwork itself in life. It must have an application in life. It must be real in life. Otherwise, it's not it's not genuine theology. Right? But if it is, if it is genuinely, genuinely true, those those two things should be together. And if there's going to be one that's not going to be that's going to be missing, it should be experience, not truth. Right? Cessationalism is a great example of how this happens. Right? And let me say this: I believe cessationalism is incorrect. I don't believe that's what God intended. Because if you read the scriptures, the scriptures I don't believe support it. But we began to adopt it because we began to not see the reality. As a church, we went from the early church where there were miracles happening all over the place to a church that began to exist in the, in the Middle Ages where there just weren't miracles anymore. And so instead of looking at the scripture and saying, man, something is wrong with the how we're living church and how we're being God's people, we began to say, oh man, this, maybe, that was just, like, maybe that was just for a time. You know, maybe it's just to establish the canon. And now that the canon exists, we don't, we don't really need that anymore. I don't know how you read the book of Acts and you see God using people and not think, man, he's got to continue to do that today. Thirdly, as the internet is both helpful, but also a deeply, deeply dangerous place. There is a lot of... There, the problem with the internet is the content is often unvetted. No one is, there's no peer review to the content that you find on the internet. And YouTube is especially bad, if I can say that. There are some, sometimes YouTube is wonderful, right? But you don't need any qualifications to have a YouTube show. You just need a smartphone and a backdrop. And you can have a YouTube show. And you can say whatever you want. Right? You can write whatever you want in a blog or in a WhatsApp message. And if you go and you look around on YouTube, there are all kinds of very persuasive things that exist on the internet. One of my favorite proverbs, probably my favorite proverb, is Proverbs 18, 17. It says this, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes up and examines him. And people can be very charismatic and they can be very persuasive and they can pick one scripture and they can share incredibly powerfully about it but they could ignore the rest that provide a balance. And we need to be really, really careful with how we use the internet. Finally, and I think that the teaching of Scripture is really helpful for us. We need to recognize there's two Scriptures that I think are so, so helpful, and they're really easy to remember because they both have a lot of the same things in them. 1 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Right? 1 and 2 Timothy chapter 4, in the beginning of both of those chapters. 1 Timothy 4 says this, The Spirit 
clearly says that in the later times, some will abandon the faith and they will follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. That's now. People will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared. Later on, verse 7, he says, Timothy, have nothing to do with these godless myths, these old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. Train yourself to be godly. Later, he'll tell him, or earlier, he'll tell him to rightly divide the word of truth. Right? <clears throat> 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul starts, he says, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead in view of his appearing and of his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Why? For a time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine. And instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers who will say what their itching ears want to hear. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. That's, a, that's the warning that God has given us 2,000 years ago, that in the later times, which we are now living in, demonic spirits will enter into people who have left the faith, will begin to cause them to teach poor doctrine and poor theology, and people will abandon what is true and what is right because it is difficult and it is inconvenient. And they will begin to gather around them people who say what they want to hear. Friends, we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful. So if that, how do we know that that's happening? How do we, do, how do we test what someone's teaching? How do you test what I'm teaching right now? That I'm not lying to you and twisting the truth. All right, let's talk about just a couple of things that you can do <clears throat> that I think will be helpful. And the first is kind of obvious, but it's really important. We can't ignore it. Let's search the Scriptures. Like search the Scriptures. Like read all of the Scriptures. Be in the Word of God. All right? Remember the Bereans in Acts chapter 17. They heard what Paul was preaching, and they received it with eagerness, and they went to the Scriptures every day to make sure that he wasn't lying, to make sure that what he said made sense in light of where he was preaching from. Do that. Dig into the Scriptures. Remember Paul's advice to the Thessalonian church. Right? He speaks about prophecies. He says, guys, I don't want you to quench the Spirit. Please do not treat prophecies with contempt, but do what? But test them. Test them all and hold on to what is good. And then reject everything that is evil. Right? Test what you hear. Hold on to what is good. Reject what is evil. Remember, context is the most important tool in understanding the Scriptures. And sometimes, I think our culture and our generation, we battle with this a little bit because we, re we really like things quickly. We want to have a quick quiet time. We want, to, we want to buy a book that facilitates our quiet time that's got a devotional verse for us. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But please, guys, go and read the broader context. Don't just take the verse and think, I've got my truth for today. Right? Because that verse lands in a context, in a story, in something that was happening. And you need to know the story to really know what was going on. Read whole books of the Bible, not just a verse. Read the whole book. Understand what the author was trying to say. Understand what was going on in the congregation at the time. You know, we're preaching now in light of a situation that exists in the Western church. That's why we're doing reimagining church. Right? 
Understand that because when Paul wrote to the Ephesians or to the Colossians, there were situations that were going on in their church. Do you know what they are? Because if you know what they are, it'll help you to understand why he's writing and what they were wrestling with. And if you don't know how to find that, buy a good study Bible. It's a great investment in your life as a Christian. Is a good study Bible. You, we can't all own armies of commentaries. Right? But a good study Bible will ground you in the basics of what different verses mean, what was going on in the background of the books that you're reading, so that you begin to know more of the story. If you need a recommendation, come chat to me afterwards. Right? Second, second thing, look for congruence between, what is real, between reality and Scripture. Right? Search for that. Make sure that what you believe ties into to think what is really going on in life. Make sure that your theology isn't just up in the sky, right? that it doesn't connect, that it doesn't make sense in reality because God has testified in history to who He is. And His actions in history align with what He says about Himself. So make sure those two things are together. And if you ever find there's a deficiency in one, make sure it's a deficiency in what you, your lived reality. And then press in to find the lived reality that Scripture tells you is true. Sometimes that's a hard walk. That's a tough wrestle. But we've got to do it because that's what we're called to live by. His word is always true and we can always trust it. Thirdly, very practically, check your sources. Right? If you've ever done a tertiary education degree, you will know that how you cite things and how you make statements is basically all they want you to do in undergrad. They don't really want you to think they just want you to read and learn to th read what other people have thought. And then eventually when you get into postgrad, you can start to think for yourself. Right? But check your sources. Check your sources. Investigate who you're reading or who you're listening to. What do they say about other issues? What do they say about stuff that you know well, that you hold to closely? Right? Do they fundamentally disagree about that? Well, why? What's their issue? Can their claims be verified? I'll give you an example Recently, as, at least as far as I'm aware, this week, uh, a guy called Marty Sampson decided to renounce his faith. He's a major songwriter for Hillsong. He wrote the song, Oh, Praise the Name of the Lord Our God. He's written a lot of their songs. He's been a part of the Hillsong movement for a long time. It's a very sad situation. So I, I discovered this as, as I was... Um, around and about. I passed it on to our pastoral team who we were all commiserating on the sadness of the moment. And, um, and then I found another interesting article that kind of dissected a little bit why this might be happening. And I passed it on to Howard. And he also he thought it was interesting. He sent me an article back about the Gospel Coalition. I don't know if you, any of you know about the Gospel Coalition, right? They are, a, um, I would say, a pretty solid um, group of theologians and pastors and writers who produce content about church issues, theology issues. And this guy, it was from Joy News, and uh, I, I don't know if that's distinct from Joy Magazine, but it was from Joy News. And this oak was slating into the Gospel Coalition. He's like, you need to kiss the Gospel Coalition goodbye. That was the title of his article. And the, his reasons for that were, you know, they are, um, they've gone totally egalitarian, and which in his view is a terrible thing. Right, uh, they have what else? They have embraced um, LGBTQT people and and theology and uh, and all kinds of other things. <clears throat> and I thought to myself, I'm, this just doesn't seem right. I'm pretty sure that's just not true. 
And so I went onto the Gospel Coalition website, and I went to their About Me page, and I pulled up their statement of belief, and lo and behold, it's totally opposite to what they believe, right? And I went onto the author of the article's webpage, and I found out some of the other things he said. One of the things that he said was, Francis Chan is a false teacher. Francis Chan is a false, and this is the best part, John, you'll enjoy this, because he's all about receiving glory for himself and not God. And I'm like, have you even listened to any of Francis Chan's teaching? Because if I there's one thing I could say about Francis Chan, it's he's about God and not himself. You know? And so check your sources. Interrogate what you're reading. Don't just presume that because it's on the internet, it's true. Or because someone forwarded to you in a WhatsApp message that it's true. Check your sources. And finally, and I think perhaps most importantly, develop a deep and broad knowledge of Scripture. Learn the whole story of Scripture. I know we love the New Testament, but don't just be a New Testament Christian. Know the story of the Bible. Read the Old Testament. Understand how God has worked with His people through generations upon generations, through thousands of years, how He's journeyed with His people. Because every time God reveals Himself, that's who He is. I, the Lord, do not change. Malachi 3, verse 6a. It's my favorite verse in the Bible. All right? The Lord doesn't change. When you see God reveal Himself, you begin to know Him more. Develop a deeper and a broader understanding of, of the Scripture, the whole story of God and His people. And find some good tools that will help you. I'll, I'll give you a hint. There's a great tool called the Bible Project. Right? If you haven't discovered them before, go and look on the internet. Search the Bible Project, not the Gospel Project. That's also a good tool, but the Bible Project is better. Right? Go and find the Bible. They have made a video on every single book of the Bible that is an in, a animated infographic video with great scholarship in a way that's super easy to understand and beautiful to look at, and it gives you a summary of every single book. It is fantastic. And if you want to go deeper, there are themes that they dig into, stuff that, cons that comes through the Bible from beginning to end. Go have a look at the Bible Project. It's a great place to find some solid... Um, background information. Uh, ask questions. Ask questions to people you trust. Maybe even people you don't trust and don't know yet. Right? Begin to gather different insights and opinions and weigh them up and test them against Scripture. Come and ask me questions if you want. I don't have all the answers, but we'll try. Right? Come and ask others questions. Look for good books. Find good recommendations. Because when we know the truth, the truth sets us free. And Jesus said, it is for freedom that I have come to set you free. Actually, Paul said it, but that's what Jesus came for, right? He came that we as his people might live in freedom so that he would receive glory through us because we are able to respond freely in obedience because we're not weighed down by falsehoods and lies or we haven't stripped away stuff that's important that God wants us to be carrying. You remember, you remember King Saul in the Old Testament, right? King Saul made a significant mistake. He was supposed to wait for Samuel to arrive to make an offering. And he got impatient. And so he thought, you know what? I'll just do it. God won't mind. It'll be fine. We'll just do the offering. We could do the battle and it'll be great. But God did mind. God had said Samuel is to do the offering. Samuel is to, to bless the, the battle that you're about to go into and pass on my anointing to you. And by taking that on yourself, you have disregarded what I've said is true and right. From that moment on, God removed his blessing from Saul. 
And Samuel went on to anoint David to be king after him. The truth sets us free. The truth allows us to live in the freedom that God has given to us. And we need to, we need to do our very best to make sure that what we believe is true and right. And we need to know the scriptures because the scriptures give us life. Shall we pray together? Thank you, God, that you did not leave us without a witness to yourself. That you have declared for us what is true and you've written it down for us and you've preserved it for us and given it to us in the scriptures, in the Bible. We bless you for that, God. Thank you, Jesus, that when you set us free, we are free indeed. We are free, God, to live in obedience to you. We are free to follow you, for you to receive glory through us, for your kingdom to be extended, for those who are lost in darkness to be brought into light. And that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. As we rest in you, as we follow you, as we are empowered by the Spirit, we are able to do so in joy and in a fullness and an abundance of life because that's what you come to give us. And Lord, I want to pray for us together that as your people, we would be discerning in what we believe. And God, if there is stuff that we've begun to pick up or that we've picked up over the years, that has just not been of you, won't you, by your grace and in the Spirit, just begin to point that out to us? And show it to us so that we would be able to enter into truth. And that we would be able to be, we would lose burdens that we've been carrying and enter into the freedom that, that you have for us. We ask you for that, God. We ask you for courage to believe things that are sometimes unpopular because you've said them. Because you've established what is true. Oh, thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. Help us, God, as we go about our lives. To, to filter the stuff that comes into us, to, to test everything and to hold on to what is good and reject that which is evil. We ask this, Lord, so that you would receive glory through us. In your wonderful name we pray, King Jesus. Amen. 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 Friends, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Um,